0: foundation arvind gupta the reason
1: that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years
0: enjoy this week's show welcome to behind the markets here on business radio powered by the warren school i'm your host jeremy schwartz global head of research at WisdomTree. tree my co-host warren finance professor jeremy siegel author of stocks for long run and the future for investors Please note, I'm registered representative represent Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offers of same investment products, and the views are our guests are their own, not those Tree's affiliates. Uh, we've got a very special guest and program for you today. We're going to be talking with Tom Barkin, who is the president and CEO of the Richmond Fed. Uh, There's been a lot of activities in the markets, the economy. The Fed is doing a lot of unprecedented kind of stimulus measures, relief packages, I guess you would call it more than stimulus measures. Uh, Professor Siegel, I know know you are, have a lot of views on these topics. Uh, we didn't get to have you on with Tom when when he and I first spoke out in sort of a Jackson Hole-type conference, but uh, I'm glad we're all connected here. Tom, thank you so much for joining our program today.
2: Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be
1: here.
0: Professor, do you want to kick off? I know you you have a lot of views on what's yeah. happening in the market, was
1: yeah, Just a little aside, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here at the shore the first time, Memorial Day. I am spending with my family. Um, on CNBC, they just had the owner of the Margate Dairy Bar, which is four blocks away from where I live here, um, and the reopening of the shore. He talks about all the new things he has to do and the margins, that, the extra costs that uh, are affected, and he'll lose money until, you know, things normalize. But then, you know, he's going to keep his customers and um, and then when things do normalize uh you know continue to run a successful business as he has for over 50 years here at the shore and i i just think that that's what the hope of everyone is here uh you know it's 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 going to be tough, tough to reopen when you, when you you know it's you're you're not going to cover your costs but uh you you you're, you're, you're you know, by by staying open um, and absorbing it, if you can, and the government is helping, of course, um, uh, you, you're looking for that uh, that brighter future uh, that we have uh, in the future. And uh, I know, Tom, you've written on on similar, and and I, I think our, I think you and and we all are are hoping for the same thing.
2: Absolutely, I I think. Um... You know, we've had a lot of talk in this country about reopening and when could we reopen and how could we reopen. But honestly, I think that the operational part of reopening is almost the easy part. The hard part is customers coming back to your stores or your shops or your uh, hotel. And I really do think if you've been locked down and in your uh, home for nine weeks, the notion of uh, going out and engaging in personal commerce at a time where there's still no vaccine or no treatment um, is a scary uh, notion to many people. And uh, I think we're going to have to uh, work our way back. It'll be slow. Um, I tracked China uh, and South Korea. If you look at shopper track data, they're still 25, 30 percent below in retail traffic where they were before they had their incidences. And, of course, they've been open up now for uh, almost three months. So I think we'll get a bounce. Uh, and I hope you have a good weekend at the shore. But I, I think the folks you're talking to are right. We're not going to bounce right back to where we were before. It's going to be slow slow going.
1: Yeah. First of all, I, 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 you know, I'm going to join in the chorus of thanking you at the Fed for pulling out all stops and um, giving us uh, all the liquidity uh, support that you do. I and mean, I know you've heard the praise um, and, and, uh, but, I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, our healthcare workers and emergency workers first praised group, but I'll tell you the Fed, <laughs> I'm going to put you in that next phrase <laughs> group to thank you. Uh, the, the question I have, um, and, uh, uh, I have a little concern about, and, uh, is, is. All this liquidity is necessary now. Um, but um, Tom, you went—you went to Harvard, am I right? You got a degree in economics. Is that, I did. Yeah. Uh, did you study under Marty Feldstein um, at all? Yes. I wonder. Yes, yes, I did. In fact, uh, when my uh, when I did not. postdoc from MIT, I got my PhD at MIT, and he was actually my postdoc. Uh, advisor <laughs> so I got to know I got to know Marty very very well. Um, uh, um, and of course when I taught at University of Chicago where I was my first teaching position, I got to know Milton Friedman very well um, uh, I know it isn't as fashionable now certainly as it was years ago, but I think it would be wrong for us to ignore uh, the virtual explosion in the money supply the the m1 money supply has gone up by 25 percent since March 9th uh, there is no comparable period in post-war history um, that approaches that increase uh, in in liquidity um, are are you I mean and the and the Fed planning to pull back that liquidity when the economy returns or um i i think i i'm worried about uh inflation um above the target i know that's hard to believe now because uh, so much is deflationary but i'm looking ahead to when this economy recovers and all that liquidity there I, i would certainly like your your opinion on that
2: uh thanks professor and uh and I remember Marty very fondly um, taught X, uh, X10 when I was there, which is the intro act course. And I had the chance to show him my notes from that when I saw him uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so let me start with stable prices is a fundamental uh, core to our mandate. And so, you know, I and I, I trust everyone in the FOMC is very focused on uh, inflation and the risk of inflation. Uh, as you say, it's kind of hard to see it right now. If you look at uh, April CPI, for example, it was uh, negative, not positive. But I think you've always got to be concerned about that risk uh, on the horizon. Um, I do think the last ten years are instructive. Uh, you know, we did uh, put a lot of liquidity in the system uh, in you know ten, eleven, and twelve. Uh, I remember being nervous about inflation then. I was on the Atlanta Fed board at that time. Uh, we didn't quite see it. I think as uh, you and others have pointed out that 's because it uh, it hung on bank balance sheets in the form of reserves as opposed to going into the market in terms of uh, currency and and it 'll be interesting to see uh, how this plays out here and of course, I do believe we have the tools to handle inflation should it come one thing i 've been interested in is the the world we used to live in the world when I went to was one where we didn't pay interest on reserves? Correct. Uh, today we do pay interest on reserves. It's not a ton right now, but it, it can be more than it is today. And, and one thing I am interested in is, does that change in any way the translation of uh, purchases on our part into uh, you know, effectively currency? Um, you know, What we're doing is we're buying uh, government debt with a different version of government debt, maybe lower maturity. Uh, slightly different rate. Um, but as long as it pays interest, I think you can make the case there's a lot less incentive for that to get redeployed. Right. And if, if we okay, see less
1: excess reserves, If you, you keep that interest at zero and and we see some rise in short-term rates, you know it's just going to be lent out then because the margin is there. But if you pay yeah. interest at near that short-term rate, it can stay as that excess reserves and that does immobilize yeah the most potent part of that. And that's basically what the Fed did, as you rightly point out, from 2009 to till till today, virtually all the QE went into excess reserves. A little bump in the money supply, but
2: really minor
1: compared to the bump that we've seen over the last eight weeks. This is something really very, very different. Not not the
2: same. And we, and we which then gets to the question of, can we take it back down? And, of course, um, you know, when you're buying relatively short-term uh, instruments, they can roll off the balance sheet as they did in the, I guess it was uh, 16 to 19 uh, period, where we took the balance sheet from, you know, the mid-fours down to the high twos and reserves down to about one-three. And so, again, I, I do believe we can do that uh, do that here as well. Mm-hmm. Of okay. course.
1: Uh, is the Fed, with the Fed, you know, you've been below target, not a lot, but below target for quite a few years. There's been, I know, discussion at the Fed about this idea of average inflation targeting versus the 2% at some sort of ceiling. Um, and, and in fact, I, I know that Paulo always used the term the symmetric 2% to emphasize the fact that, you know, we're not going to totally panic if it goes to 2, 1, 2, 2, two 3, two, 4. Um, but would you, how would you feel about if the economy was doing well, running inflation at maybe 3 or 3.5 uh, rather than clamping down uh, in this recovery phase for, for the virus? Uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I have to say um, I'm reasonably uh, skeptical on the notion of a you know, strong, healthy economy and inflation uh, over 3% and us continuing to run rates at zero. That doesn't feel like the right balance to me. I, I do think uh, you have to go to zero uh, at times like this where it's important for us to put all of our firepower behind it. But I do think there's a, a neutral rate of interest that is higher than zero. And uh, I think it's actually not that healthy for an economy to stay at zero uh, for for too many years. So I, I would think in the economy you described, which I, I certainly hope you're right that we're headed in that direction, uh, I would think normalizing rates would make a lot of sense.
1: Mm. And, and and would you raise the rates on reserves? I mean, because otherwise you're you're going to fuel much more loan creation. If you keep it at zero, they'll take the those excess reserves and loan them out uh, uh, immediately. Um, no, no. When you do normalize rates, I think that is the rate you're normalizing, which is so the, you're going to be raise, raising the short-term raise. rate. There is an interesting it's, question, and I just don't know whether you at the Fed had discussed it. So it's both short-term rates have to go up 2 to maybe 3% to, to do it. With long treasuries uh, being bought now uh, at 1% one and one5 and is is the the in Fed, which has been a huge profit engine for uh, the Treasury for so many years, might those profits really shrink dramatically? Um, uh, we may have to. Uh, could, could those short rates go below your portfolio now of what the average rate actually is if we have to raise rates?
2: Right, and I. I... Um, I know exactly what you're saying on the numbers. I should probably tell our listeners we don't think of the Fed as a profit center. Um, what does happen is we have a balance sheet. Uh, that balance sheet uh, uh, throws off some interest. And uh, if that interest is higher than the interest we pay on our reserves, that excess is uh, remitted back to the Treasury and it actually goes into the um, yeah. annual budget. It's so
1: that's, 100% that's, profit tax, So you actually help our deficit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Do. that's the. I don't want anyone to think. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, Jeremy, do you have some questions for.
0: Tom? Yeah, well, let me just reintroduce our guests real quick. And uh, from this broadcasting from home, I apologize if you could hear my kids running around in the background. Uh, they were listening behind the markets. We've got uh, Tom Barkin, president of the Richmond Fed, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, you know, Tom, I think one of the, the the questions people struggle with, and and even, you know, as, as we're talking about sort of the re- reopening, and, and Professor Siegel always talking about confidence returning before these inflation comes back, is how much permanent damage we think is coming coming from the shutdown, how many people leave the workforce, how impacts sort of longer term trends in either the labor force or productivity. I'm just curious here, how are you guys thinking through the temporary versus permanent impacts of what's going on here?
2: I do worry about that. And I think obviously the, the best set of things we could do to avoid permanent impacts would be uh, a health solution, whether that be a treatment or a vaccine or a protocol that convinces people you could shop or eat or travel uh, safely. Uh, Obviously, a large part of the fiscal uh, support that the economy's gotten has been around trying to limit the damage. Uh, I think about it like this. I start with the workforce. Um, You know, it's pretty well known over the last 20, 25 years. uh, We've had a polarization uh, of the workforce, a rise in, I'll call it, cognitive higher tech jobs, uh, a rise actually in lower end service level sector jobs and a shrinking of those, uh, you know, middle-class manufacturing and the like kind of jobs. That's gotten a lot of attention. Um, What's distressing about this pandemic is it seems to have gone directly after the lower part of that barbell, the uh, lower end service jobs. And so, you know, whether that be waiters or uh, uh, healthcare workers or um, hotel employees, uh, you've got a a lot of uh, folks now out of work. And the question of how many of those jobs come back is pretty uh, fundamental. If you believe, as I believe, that those sectors will come back, but maybe not to the level they were, or certainly not quickly, then you do have a, a set of workforce out there that are going to need uh, retraining, reskilling. Uh, it's not 100% obvious to me that an infrastructure program, which is talked about a lot, is the single best way to uh, employ those folks. Not everyone you know, wants to go work on a, a road gang. Um, so this question of, how we get those people into new uh, careers and professions into places like home health or contact tracing or others that I project will be growing. And so I do think there's a lot to be said for uh, how do we make certificate programs at community colleges a lot more uh, available to folks. You know, Pell grants, most people don't know, only apply for degree programs, not certificate programs. That's the kind of thing we could do something about. Uh, My daughter's a college student. Uh, She's home working online. Has online now been normalized for all these institutions? And if it is, does that mean you've actually got a very low marginal cost kind of uh, education vehicle, which we could use to retrain folks? But I I think this issue of how we get that workforce redeployed and retrained is a huge one. I'll then add to it, uh, um, you know, uh, there was a stat published that the employment to population uh, last month was as low as it's been since 1973. And I stopped. I was around in 1973 and tried to remember what was different between now and then. And, of course, the biggest difference was that was really the, the point of real rise of women in the workplace. And, uh, by the way, another big group that's increased in the workplace is 55 and up, my my age group, um, for whatever combination of better health or, or need the money or, or whatever. Well, you know, I talked to our folks single parents, working couples who are working from home uh, with no childcare or daycare, with the schools closed, with camps closed. Uh, And I I don't think that's a sustainable situation from a workforce participation uh, standpoint. Uh, Similarly, uh, folks in my age range apparently have a higher risk of contracting the virus. So you could imagine uh, some disinclination to engage in uh, the workforce there, too. And if those two groups back out of the workforce, you also lower the productive capacity of the country. And so that's another place I'm focused. And then maybe a third, I'll just call it fundamental productivity. There's the obvious part of fundamental productivity, which is uh, if you've got fewer uh, uh, patrons in a restaurant uh, or, uh, you know, uh, a workflow in a manufacturing outfit that's uh, more distanced and therefore less productive, you'll have those kind of issues. But we will have a pretty significant amount of government debt uh, coming um, and probably private and corporate debt as well. And the question of whether that debt and the increased uncertainty levels hampers investment, which, of course, is fundamental to productivity, is another one I'm looking at as well. So workforce participation, workforce redeployment, uh, and productivity, all three of those are things I worry about.
1: You know, also, I I think of uh – you can talk about permanent, let's, let's assume, and, and this is, I know, an extremely best-case scenario. Vaccine does get developed by the end of the year, and we can vaccinate all Americans. Um, what is going to be permanently changed? So we don't have the fear. We don't need the distancing. Uh, will people say, you know what, I worked at home almost as effectively. Do I need to commute in? I think commercial real estate could be permanently damaged by this. I mean, uh, people are saying of course, five year acceleration in online ordering compared to uh, brick and mortar uh, type of thing. so what you know are, are small shops going to f- going to f- going to be- you know fail so even when the the fear of the disease disappears for one reason or the other, the shock of being Moved into another space opens up new behaviors that may not go back to the previous ones, even if they could theoretically yeah. what, what which which behaviors do you think might be permanently uh, impacted um, yeah uh, great on uh, if, if that scenario would take place
2: yeah well, first of all i I very much hope you're right on that. A vaccine. Um, and, and I always caution you know, by saying that uh, it's easy to draw, you know, pictures of how the world may be different tomorrow, but often it doesn't turn out to be all that different. You know, the bank branch has been supposed to be disappeared for 50 years. Um, you know, after 9-11, we thought people wouldn't fly again. Um, but that said, 9-11 is a pretty good example because, uh, you know, there was technology introduced there that, uh, you know, mobile check-in or kiosks that really wasn't uh, around before. And it was an efficiency thing for that industry. And it was a better experience, at least for me and maybe many other flyers. And so, you know, you'll see technology get deployed faster. And I could imagine a lot of technology like uh, self-checkout. Uh, telehealth is a great example. Um, I've used it a couple times now. It works just fine. That's a place where in some places you couldn't even get it reimbursed. So I think accelerated uh, implementation of technology is a very likely outcome of some of this, especially in places where it reduces uh, contact or uh, usage. uh, Adoption rates are likely to be higher because people have tried it here. Mm -hmm. Another
1: thing,
2: after 9-11, there used to be a Delta shuttle and a U.S. air shuttle between New York and Boston that was very high end. And you, you know, arrived, you jumped in, and you, you know, went to your plane. That all disappeared. The flight still runs, but it's not nearly as high end, in part because you can't do the, its immediate service thing with all the TSA and other processes you've got to do. And so I think some of the health protocols that are probably going to be permanent are going to you know, reduce the attractiveness of certain businesses and certain offers. I don't know how long it will take the nursing home sector uh, to come back, given some of the challenges we've had there or the cruise line uh, sector. Um, you know, you you mentioned, and I think you're right, this will accelerate the trend, in, uh, which was already happening, away from uh, physical to online uh, retail, and there may be other places like that as well. Uh, certainly, uh, retail real estate is challenged. Um, I, don't, I don't know on office uh, real estate. Uh, I will say my office is on the 24th floor, and I'm not looking forward to climbing the stairs when we get there. But I, I think... I think it's too early to tell whether work from home will be a big deal. But I will say flexible work has got to go up when this happens, and that that may be good for a lot of other things. So I I think the world can and will change because we've had – how do you say it? Whenever you do one of these uh, worst-case risk management drills or a tabletop, there's always something in the back of your head that says, yeah, yeah, but okay, I don't really think this happened, or I hope to God that never happens. The fact that this pandemic thing, which has been topped in so many different places for, you know, 20 years, has now actually happened, I think will crystallize a set of actions. Uh, we didn't talk about supply chain diversification. I think that's another place we'll clearly see if you have your supply chain in just one country, you'll say, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. And you'll diversify that, you know, given the issues people had in January and February around supply uh, out of China. So a lot of those things I think will just because you've crystallized the risk, I think people will now act against it.
1: Let me just say for a moment, um, when they, I, I live in a high-rise condominium in Philadelphia. And, of course, they closed the fitness center that was there. So I, as my exercise, I live on the 30th floor, actually climbed up the 30 floors, <laughs> served as my good aerobic exercise for the day <laughs> in reference to you climbing twenty four floors to your office. But I wanna ask about that supply chain because that is critical. Deglobali I think deglobalization uh, on a massive scale would be a big mistake. And I asked the following question. I want just want your opinion on this. You know, people you know, we couldn't get sanitizers, we couldn't get masks. Uh, couldn't we stockpile at a very low cost so many of those things? They should have been stockpiled, but, you know, in the future, uh, it isn't expensive for those critical things. I mean, maybe one or two plants to do it, but do we really have to uh, bring everything back on shore the way uh, some of us are talking today? What's your view on that?
2: Oh, I I don't think we'll see uh, massive reshoring in in the U.S. for reasons of competitiveness. I do think there will be sectors, and it may well be that PPE is one of them, uh, just like defense, where, you know, we pass a few laws that say, no, we want to have onshore production at this scale to, you know, for for reasons of uh, national security and safety. I think that's entirely conceivable. For the rest of businesses, as I talk to business leaders, if they have a uh, one country supply chain, uh, they are nervous about it now. And it's again, it's crystallized in their mind the risks they're taking. Um, when they think about diversification, you know, let's assume for a second they actually had optimized their supply chain economically. They're not interested in taking a massive economic hit to diversify their supply chain. So they're looking for another lower cost country or two. In which to do it. And there may well be small sectors where uh, local manufacturing can be a supplement or a help. But I hear a lot more about Mexico or Vietnam or Malaysia than I do about, you know, bringing stuff back to the U.S. outside of that, which is, um, you know, mandated.
0: I know we're running out of time with you, Tom. Um, you know, one maybe one question on um, when we think about the the, the crisis points always force you to get better. You talk about the productivity enhancements, and Professor Siegel talked about inflation. I wonder if one of the big trends on the training issue, you know, you think about the online learning is you know, one of the runaway costs for people, sort of the student debt, the cost of education. Do you think the move to online might democratize and uh, maybe less sort of lower the cost of education over time? Any any thoughts from either of you on, on that big picture topic?
2: Um, it pays Professor Siegel's salary, so I'll, I'll defer to him for the final word. Um, I'll just I, mean, say that I
1: mean, I, I did not – this was a semester where I didn't teach, so I didn't have to go through it. Uh, believe it or not, generally the experience for most of them were better than they had expected. Now, we're talking about college kids. Obviously, when we're talking about much lower grades, that's a different thing. But at the college kid – and I do think there had been way too much inflation in tuition – um and two factors globalization you know i v v which i 'm fortunate enough to teach in you know becomes the lodestone where everyone wants to go, but also i mean the the student loan program for all its benefits just enabled a lot of people to pay those tuitions and unfortunately get into more debt than they should have so I mean already tuition i think it 's too i i think it should come down um very honestly um and uh, certainly, those those big increases, I think, are o- are over.
2: And any closing also, thoughts from you, Tom? Also, the value proposition of uh, a school like Penn is obviously clear, um, online or in person. I think there are a lot of universities where, if you take away the in person experience, it's not at all obvious what you're getting on top of the online, and that you know could create massive competition online and drive costs down. We're assuming, of course. Uh, you know, continued constraints on personal interaction, which I certainly hope is not going to be the case.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think that that's a very good point. Pandemics do end. There's been great progress, really great. But today, Fauci, of course, saying really, you know, the Moderna uh, 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 is is really important, um, and uh, really, uh, I'm 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 very very hopeful. I'm very hopeful.
0: Well, President Barkin, Professor Siegel, uh, thank you so much. As professor started th- with uh, thanking you for all the, uh, the efforts the Fed is doing, thank you for coming on and spending some time with us to explain what you guys are thinking right now.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm always always happy to do it. And thank you, guys. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.